Welcome to episode 63 of Off the Shelf. When I was a child, I sang a song. Yes, Jesus loves me. That was years ago and now I'm grown. Yes, Jesus loves me. The city where I live, so many things have changed. They say nothing ever stays the same. The grass is brown, many buildings torn down. Oh, and people have known they're not around. But God still loves me. I said He's still. Oh, He loves me. After all these years, oh, He still loves me. He always has, and He always will. Thanks for joining us for our third episode of Season 2 of Off the Shelf. This episode concludes the discussion that Emily, Tim, and I had on the 8th of August, 2020. You know, here I remember Rod being called, Rod and one other guy being called the Three Stooges of of uh, the message. I never, I never could figure out how two guys equaled three stooges. Well, no, he actually me. said, he actually said four people. And, and actually, oh. I, I, that, that, that this is, and we should, we should, we should talk about this a bit because it's funny. Vin Dial, uh, who's a message minister in Trinidad, because you're talking about money and then we have to, we have to talk about this because this is one of the biggest things that happened in the last uh, two years since I stopped doing the podcast. This was something that happened just over 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 New Year's uh, this this past year, uh, and I knew Vin quite well, uh, Pastor Vinworth Dial. I visit his church many uh, several times, I should say, in in Trinidad. Um, so so what what Tim, what you're talking about? He called out in a service a couple years back. He referred to myself, my son Jeremy. Peter Dizer and John Collins as the three stooges of the message. Now, if you can count higher than three, you realize that there were four people he mentioned. <laughs> so, so I mean, so he's obviously numerically challenged. Yeah. And and the other problem he had is he didn't like he didn't like putting money in the bank. So in December of 2019, uh, just over six months ago. Uh, the beginning of December, the government of Trinidad and Tobago and their central bank announced the demonetization of the $100 paper they call cotton, the, the $100 cotton note by December 31st. So he just basically said the cotton $100 note, the, the $100 bill <clears throat> in Trinidadian dollars uh, was going to be replaced by a plastic, a polymer $100 bill and would become legal tender in January 2020, and the old paper money, the cotton money, wasn't good anymore. 
And so if you had the old bills, you had to trade them in for the new plastic money uh, and you only had a month to do it. And, and the reason that the government wanted to do that, there was so much money that was unaccounted for, they wanted to stop money laundering. So, and this is according to Trinidadian newspapers, on December 31st, the Central Bank of Trinidad red flagged Pastor Dial because he tried to convert $28 million in cash for, it's like, here is, here is 28 paper boxes. Like, and if you know the, if you've ever seen a, a seen a, a file size box, Banker's it's a box. big yeah, box. Yeah. Each box contained a million dollars, the banker's box. Each box contained $1 million of Trinidadian uh, money. And they took it in. Now, you say, well, what is that worth in, in U.S. dollars? It's $4.1 million in cash. Wow. He wow. took it in. In just the, in $100 bills. In, in $100 bills. Wow. <laughs> he took it into the bank. And, of course, now the, the Federal Investigation Bureau of Trinidad looked at this and they said, we think you're money laundering. So, so the fin Financial Intelligence Unit seized the cash and then they they took a big uh investigation they went into his house and looked at the church and they found another 2.5 million dollars of cash floating around wow. uh, third exodus assembly it's on depot row in longdonville trinidad and the pastor said uh, probably truthfully that he got his money from tithes um, and the monies were seized under the Proceeds of Crime Act of, of Trinidad. Just think about this. This is crazy. He had, all the money was seized was about $30.5 million in Trinidadian and Tobago dollars sitting around in cash, 20, over 28 boxes, $4.5 million U.S. dollars sitting around in boxes in his house and in the church. Good grief. Like, so my question is, and so, you know, we talk about message ministers, there's a lot of money floating around. Message ministers, for the most part, live in really nice houses. If the church is of any size at all, they live in really big houses. Houses that are generally better than, than the average house, the congregation. So my question is, why didn't they help the poor? Yeah. Yeah. Emily, you've been in Africa, spent a lot of time there. I've been to Africa uh, a couple of times. Uh, specifically, I went to the countries of Benin and Togo. We actually, with our ministry, we drill water wells in remote villages where there's no good supply of water because kids are dying. So children are dying because they don't have good water. And then we put in a well, we show the Jesus film, we plant churches. We've had over 50,000 people come to Christ in the country of Benin alone. So I asked, like, wow. why are they hoarding these, th this cash, right? And uh, it, it, there's a sermon that, that Vin Dial preached on January the 2nd of this year, 2020, uh, while the financial investigation officers were busy counting the money that they seized from the church. Vin Dial reportedly said, this was in the newspaper, it's good to see all the troops out tonight. Satan trying to make me famous. Amen. But there is more in heaven, friends, more with us than with them. There is more with us than with them by the grace of Almighty God. You see, that is what the devil has tried. The devil tried to hit me something, 
and think we will scatter and fall apart, but that word is planted in you, that's when the going gets, gets tough. The tough gets going. We not in some kind of jokey religion, friends. This is an apostolic church with an apostolic faith. This is the Bible church. But it's not. That's not. It's yeah. not because you know what Paul said? Paul said in Galatians 2, 9 to 10, James, Peter, and John, esteemed as pillars in the church, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they go to the circumcised, the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing, Paul said, I had been eager to do all along. They didn't. Wow. But, but these guys don't. I mean, right. there's 28, there's, there's over $4.5 million in cash sitting around. Why wouldn't they help the poor? What are they going to do with this cash? Interestingly, Will, William Branham had the same problem. He ran into a big problem with the IRS in 1956. The IRS charged William Branham with tax evasion. It was eventually settled out of court by him paying a, a penalty of $40,000. What's interesting to understand is that penalty today, so in $40,000 in money in his time, was equivalent to about $380,000. So William Branham was charged a tax evasion penalty of $380,000 in today's money. Wow, that, that's a large penalty. That's a large penalty. And I guarantee Pastor Dial didn't pay tax on the money that's sitting around. And I, I expect when he when the dust will settle on this thing, he's going to have a big... Uh, It'd be a, a big tax, big tax problem. Yeah, so, I, I, Emily, he, Tim, how he, much work do message churches do among the poor? Oh, nothing, nothing. I have a very vivid memory. Uh, when I was young, uh, I was I was go went back into the sanctuary. Nobody I was in there knew I was in there, and they always had these little boxes up front. You had tithes. You had offerings and you had missions. So it looked like missions. You know, sometimes we'd have a pastor come from the Philippines and, uh, you know, they would give message books. Well, what's a message book when someone, you know, is in need and needs, you know, uh, teach a man to fish, you know, feed him for a lifetime, give a man a fish, feed him for a day kind of thing. And and uh, a lot of, you know, I've done a lot of developmental work over in uh, Africa and you don't see people reaching out. I mean, even when you're in uh, a catastrophe happens, what's the first thing they say? Oh, were any message people hurt? Oh, look at God save this message church from this tornado. But going back to being a child, I vividly remember seeing the pastor go up front. He didn't know I was in there. Everybody was out in the foyer chit-chatting, you know. And uh, he went and grabbed a hand, the, all the cash out of the ties, put it in his pocket grabbed all the money out of the offerings, put it in the same pocket, grabbed all the money out of missions, put it in the same pocket, you know, the same pocket. So here's <laughs> all this designated money going into the same pocket. And this is a guy who got a different brand new lease vehicle every two years. You know, you look at William Branham, all of his hunting safaris and things, and yep. you hear him talk about my first car was a Ford or a Chevy or whatever, you know, did he have amnesia? Or maybe he had multiple cars. Look at some of his pictures. He was by brand, all sorts of different brand new cars. And you look at his gun collection stuff. There was money rolling in, follow the money, you know, uh, in the scriptures you see in the gospel, when you follow Jesus, there is a cost. A lot of the disciples, uh, 
you know, Paul, he was in prison. There's not wealth to be had in following Jesus. And all of the uh, apostles were killed in very horrific ways for following Jesus. They weren't, you know, living in mansions on a hill and doing all of this. And so the, the message is... They don't reach out to others. Message ministers do not preach the gospel that Paul preached. And I can say that no. unequivocally. Sure. Message yeah. ministers do not preach the gospel that Paul preached. You can tell that because living in a nice house for them is more important than helping the poor, which Paul said, I always wanted to do. And the apostle said, you need to help the poor. But the message does not do this. Well, it's interesting you were mentioning, Emily, the the cash that went into the same pocket. There were, I was having a conversation, gosh, and I want to say this was, and Rod, you were partly, you you had an ancillary part in this. It was a, it was a lady whose husband, she was trying her best to separate herself from the message. She was still living with her husband who was heavily involved in the message. His family was the local minister and the, there were, gosh, it was, all family that was involved in this message church. And as we began to look at it, she began to mention some things about, you know, the, the church and, and how dad sort of uses the tithing and the offerings as kind of his personal ATM. As it turns out, as we looked into this, the church had not been um, chartered uh, as far as being a church, it had received a charter way back when the charter had been revoked by the state of Arkansas uh, from as being a, a church, which was legally allowed in the state of Arkansas. There was also some issues related to did they ever qualify or even apply for 501c3 status or nonprofit status with the IRS. So here these people are giving this money to this church, which is supposed to be set up as an entity so that accountability can be undertaken around where the money comes from and to whom it goes and how it is paid out. There's no accountability. There's no structure. People are given money. Now, they're writing it off on their taxes. As far as they're concerned, they're given to a nonprofit. That is, they're giving it to their church. There's no indication that this church even qualifies as a nonprofit organization, either in Arkansas or uh, as, as it relates to the rules under the IRS, there's no tax accountability at all for the money. This guy's just taking it as income. Uh, and basically, he's just taken, you know, and this and from what I understand, the more I get into this, there's a lot of churches that operate that way. Yeah, this is not a unique situation no. or a unique thing for this particular church. No, I mean, the same thing when, when I uh, when when I looked at the news reports, they said that uh, the church in Trinidad had been deregistered because they hadn't kept their registration up to date. So it wasn't right. a valid charity in Trinidad. I mean, right. this is, I mean, it's its bizarre. And I mean, the, the other thing, again, financial, I mean, the church that we attended, of course, there's family members involved in ministry. Well, the senior pastor told another pastor, uh, a related individual, you don't have to pay tithes anymore. I will give you a uh, an indulgence. <laughs> I'll give you an indulgence with respect to your tithes and you don't have to pay tithes anymore. Because anyways, it's going back to the church and then we pay you. So it just goes around in a circle. So you, you're exempted from tithes here on in. 
Unbelievable. That's isn't that why Martin Luther <laughs> isn't that why Martin Luther nailed a dispensation or a disputation to the church wall? <laughs> yeah. Is for the dispensations the church was handing Indulgence, out like that? yeah. Indulgences. Goodness. So they're in the message too. I mean, it, it's just absolutely bizarre. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So we, you know, I, I think there are some real issues in the message, but I have to say, we as a former message community. It's interesting to follow the former message community and how they address those things or how they deal with those things as well. You've got people who, and I, there have been people who have done some research. Man, this, there are some folks who have done some absolutely fabulous research. And the research is readily available for anybody to look at. And, you know, the, even though the research is available, doesn't necessarily mean that I would, and I, and I, I'm a data person. That's, I mean, I'm, you know, welcome to Microsoft. Welcome to process analysis. I'm a data person. One of the things is I love to look at all the data that's been given. I draw, but, but there are oftentimes conclusions which are presented with the data and the conclusions aren't necessarily in my mind. I can't bring myself to say that the conclusions are supported by the data. Yeah, I agree. And so what we have is a lot of really good research and a really good data. And we've got a lot of really good tools. And then you go to a forum whose intent is, as an example, to talk to ex-message folks about the message and about William Branham specifically. And the conversations go completely into the weeds. They get into the weeds about, you know, this, I mean, you know, gosh, Back in the you know back in 1954, this particular relationship with this guy, and could one presume based on the data that there was a knowing relationship between William Branham and that guy's organization? Yeah, you could presume that. Does the data definitively define that, and is that is that conclusion supported by the data? Well, no, probably not. At the end of the day, though, we've got a lot of people who without going through the process of doing the research or without going through the process of actually looking at the data and coming to their own really good conclusions, which they can support in a very solid way to a message believer, these people are parroting or espousing things that come out of other research. And and then you get ministers in the message, you go, oh yeah, but gosh, that's just so-and-so. This guy has, his research is completely, oh my gosh. Your quote that you're using that guy's research. You know how in the world could you use that guy's? Re- Let me that guy's completely out into the weeds. And so I think my caution to former message people would be: there's a lot of really, really significant data available, and we should use all the data that we have available, which supports solidly based conclusions and foundations, in order to talk to people in the message. But the focus should be the scriptural nature of the message. The personality of the guy, there's so many, I tell you, there's so many personality problems with, or some, so many historical problems with William Branham and his personal history and how his personal history has been glossed over or portrayed and how people do what they can to avoid having discussions about his personal issues. There's, there's a lot of that going on. But that's, to me, that's, an, that's a secondary or even tertiary issue. The primary issue is, does the message of William Branham 
align with scripture. And I think the focus of X message believers, when they get into this, when they get into the weeds of a lot of this research, they find themselves in a situation where they haven't done a lot of work as it relates to really be having a solid foundation and, you know, and, and finding into that research. On the other side of that coin, you get a lot of message folks who will say, well, you just don't, you know, look, you just don't have a revelation of Jesus Christ because, you know, you don't believe in the message. And there is no foundation or basis for that statement. But they heard, they asked their their pastor, what do you think about the guys on the Believe the Site forum or the Believe the Site website? And they and the, the, the minister has said, well, those guys just never had a real revelation of William Branham. They just don't have a real revelation of Jesus Christ. They've never been of Christ because you couldn't have been of Christ or the Holy Spirit and, and then get this conclusion. So instead of understanding what the minister was saying and actually doing the research themselves to support that statement, what they do is pop up with a drive-by posting that says, you guys are idiots because you don't have any, you know, you never had a true revelation of the message. So, you know, on both sides of the argument, there's plenty of discussion going on where we don't have, where the people that are speaking don't have a good foundation scripturally for what it is they're trying to get to. And I, I would encourage, but that would, if there was one takeaway from me in all of this, I really, really want people to go back and research, not William Branham's, you know, how many, I, 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 I don't, as a tertiary issue, it's interesting data about his personal history. I want people to go back and say, what does the word of God have to say about your salvation? Is there a requirement for a, a human intercessor between man and God in this new covenant? And, you know, the, the kicker is we've got a lot, of, a lot of pushback from people saying that there's no difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, that incredibly naive statement, that incredibly wrong statement that, that doesn't look to separate, I mean, goodness sakes, there was a reason that Jesus Christ was sacrificed for our sins. And to, and to actually say, you need somebody other than Jesus Christ and his word and the Holy Spirit as a guide in your life, to be, it minimizes the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross when he died for our sins. Tim, I mean, you make a, an extremely good point. And the reason is, is that actually most message people know the message, but they don't know the Bible very well. Yeah. So when you actually, when you read Hebrews 8.13, where the writer of, of the book of Hebrews said, by calling this covenant, this is the gospel, by calling this covenant new, he, God, this is God, has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete Absolutely. and outdated will soon disappear. And in AD 70, it disappeared. Yeah. When you when you mention this to people, they they they're aghast. They go, "What? The Old Testament is obsolete." Yeah. Why you don't you don't keep the laws, do you? The 613 laws in the Old Testament, you don't keep them, do you? Well, no. But but then they seem seemingly have no problem when William Branham takes something from the Old Testament and brings it into the new. Right. And and they don't understand the moment of transition because like you say they don't know the scriptures. 
So at the in, in the book of Matthew is an example um, when he speaks specifically when at the moment Jesus died and the curtain was torn from the top to the bottom in the sanctuary which separated the holy of holies from everybody else because in the old testament in the old covenant that was the covenant of, of atonement that was the covenant the covenant of judgment and at the end of the day that you know you, there were only two ways to get information from god one of them was through the high priest in the holy of holies because he was the only one allowed to see god the other one was through instructions by his prophets at the moment Jesus died and that curtain was torn in the sanctuary revealing the whole of Holy of Holies, God exposed himself to everybody. Now we don't need the whole, we don't need the high priest as an intercessor. Now we don't need the prophet of God as an intercessor. That moment was critical to the transition between what took place in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and what took place in the New Covenant. And you still have people in the message who say, Gosh, I, you know, well, it, to, to say that we are, you know, that the Old Testament or the Old Covenant is not in effect is, you know, is ludicrous. And they have to say that. The reason they have to say that is because William Branham supports that contention with the things that he says about, you know, this is the way you have to behave. This is the way you have to act. This is the way you have to dress. You know, these are the things you can't do. These are the things you can do. So, the, of course, the Old Covenant or the Old Testament has to be in effect, or, or, or half of what William Branham says as it relates to your behavior would be of no, would be of no effect. Yeah. But, by, but by not understanding the, new, the ushering in of the New Covenant, they minimize the very sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for our sins. And as a result of that sacrifice, we no longer need a human intercessor. What's worse is I'm not Jewish. I, and the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, was specifically, and and frankly, the ministry of Je the ministry of Jesus Christ was specifically to the Jews. Yeah. And he opened his ministry to everybody else, the Gentiles. That would be us, who had no understanding of the message or of the of Mosaic law. He opened that up the, at the moment he commissioned his disciples to go unto all the world. And make disciples of all men. When he gave that commission, that includes me. That's that's the part that includes me, not the Mosaic law. And at the end of the day, that moment when Jesus ushered in that new covenant and then instructed his disciples to go make me a follower of Christ, that's that's the covenant that I move forward with. If I'm bound to the law, then I'm a Jew, and my and my faith in Christ and His sacrifices of no effect. So the question I have for a message believer then is, why would you minimize that sacrifice and nullify the ushering in of a new covenant by placing in between me and God a human intercessor? And that's exactly what they do. And they say the message, you have to believe in the message. You know, that's exactly what that is. We won't cover this in, in, in this episode, but I do want to leave this maybe a homework for anyone who's listening, and we'll cover this in a future uh, episode of Off the Shelf. I ask this of, of a number of people, and most people don't know this exists. And that question is, what are the four commands that the apostles gave to the Gentile Christians? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will give a, a hint to those people in the message or outside the message, because most people don't, oh, the apostles gave us commands that we had to follow? Yeah, four commands. There are only four commands that they gave 
to the Gentile church. They wrote it in a letter to the Gentile churches, and you can find them in Acts chapter 15, from verse 23 to 29. You can read, you should read the whole chapter, chapter 15 in the book of Acts, which goes through the Jerusalem council and, and how this letter came to be. And the letter's again mentioned in Acts 21, verse 25. There were four commands that were given to the, they're not the Ten Commandments. They're not, they don't include tithing. There are four commands that were given to the Gentile Christians, and most people don't know that they exist. They and, don't and, know why they better, exist. And that's a great homework assignment, Rod, but better than that, they don't know, they don't know why they exist, which is more important. It's, you know, they, they came in the form of a letter because the disciples were teaching things incorrectly to the Gentile churches, Absolutely. and the letter was to clean it up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and in the message, we they, th that's ignored. Yeah. And yeah, we get, there's a whole bunch of other things added that you have to keep, but that's not anything that was ever given to the Gentile church. Yeah, exactly. So, and I, and I personally, I'm not a Jew. So at the end of the day, I'll stick with my, I, and I'm, thank goodness, because I couldn't do 600, I mean, if it was up to me to live up to 613 laws, I'd be, just bury me now. I'd just be toast. I've been to Israel uh, probably half a dozen times. I've got very good friends and I, who I respect greatly uh, who keep the law. Uh, amazing. The, the amount of stuff they go through to me was was absolutely, is absolutely amazing. Uh, they try to keep all of the laws. In fact, you know, I was there in uh, Jerusalem on Shabbat. So it's coming up to Friday evening sunset. And uh, this friend of mine that I was with, he's driving the best Mercedes that you can get, high-end Mercedes. He looks around. We get out of the car. We're going to go down to the, the hotel, the, 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 the western wall of the temple for, to celebrate Shabbat. And he said, oh, I got to get rid of my keys. And he didn't want me to break Sabbath accidentally. He didn't want to accidentally uh, break Sabbath. So we had to look around and find a rock to hide his keys under uh, because wow. he didn't want to accidentally press his keys and by, thereby break Shabbat. So we took this, you know, uh, car that was worth well over $100,000 and put the keys under a rock close by so that he wow. wouldn't have to accidentally break Shabbat. So yeah. these guys treat this seriously. You know, it's funny. My, my kids live on uh, uh, Mercer Island just outside of Seattle, and there's a very large Jewish enclave there. I have to say that uh, uh, the restaurants on Mercer Island, those are the restaurants where the waiters will come up as an example and say, is, is anything okay? But at any rate, we a um, uh, little humor there that obviously didn't. <laughs> Not well translated. But at any rate, the, the kids, my kids knew as an example that they had arrived on the social scene at Mercer Island. My kids who are Goya, they're, they're not Jews. They had arrived on the social scene during their 12th and 13 years when they were invited to the bar mitzvahs. And, uh, you know, that's a big deal for a non-Jewish kid to show up. And, you know, the, 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 the goal, obviously, for the Jewish families of the Jewish kids are, you know, you're going to bring a gift. You're going to bring a, a bar mitzvah gift. So it's pretty funny for them. But one of the things that they do in houses on Mercer Island when they build a new home or, or when they convert a home or they remodel a home is the uh, you're not allowed to do work in on the Sabbath. And that's interpreted depending upon your orthodoxy in Judaism 
you're not doing work is can be as much as turning on the light or as Rod, as you mentioned, pressing the button on your car fob to open the door, right? That you're producing work. You're not supposed to produce work. One of the things, one of the restrictions in some Orthodox Judaism is by turning on an electric light, you're producing work. Yeah. So from the moment of Shabbat to when Shabbat or Sabbath ends, you're not turning on or turning off lights. So one of the first things they do when they remodel a home or purchase a new home or, or build a home on Mercer Island is to put in automatic timers for the light switches so that the lights will automatically go on on Saturday morning and they'll automatically get turned off on Friday night. And that way they didn't do it. They, we didn't do it. It just happened by itself. We didn't produce the work. I've experienced that. Tim, I was in uh, Jerusalem in uh, with with my wife in our friend's home, and uh, we were there late at midnight, um, which is the time, you know, I guess any sane person should be to bed by midnight. All of a sudden, the lights all went off, except mm -hmm. for a couple. And they go, oh, it's midnight. Um, oh, and we're on the third floor. We had, to, we had <laughs> to walk down the stairwell in the dark. I mean, complete, I couldn't see my hand in front of my face uh, yeah. because the lights were out. And I've, I've got my wife by the hand. I'm holding on to the railing and we're kind of crawling slowly down to the, the bottom. And then we had to walk from their house back to our, our hotel, which is about a mile. Yeah. And because nobody could drive a car. The other thing which, which is fun on, on Shabbat is I was uh, staying in, uh, in a hotel. We actually were in the King David Hotel, uh, mm -hmm. a well-known hotel in, in Jerusalem. And That's my beautiful. friend, uh, my friend who's also Gentile as I was, uh, got on the Shabbat elevator. And if you know what the Shabbat elevator is, it opens and closes on every floor so that if you're Jewish and you want to not break the Sabbath, you can walk into the elevator. You don't have to press any buttons and it will go down, open and close on every floor. So you will eventually get down. And my friend got down. He says, that's the worst <laughs> elevator I've ever been on in my life. <laughs> like, what is going on? I said, oh, you didn't read the sign. This says Shabbat elevator. You don't want to take this one. You want to take the Gentile <laughs> elevator. <laughs> that's funny. That's well, great. I'm, I'm going to suggest we bring our conversation to a close. This has been a lot of fun, and we're going to do it again. Uh, just as a, a, a word, we have an upcoming episode. It'll be a couple episodes, I expect, with a former member of the Seven Thunders movement. And we've got, this is going to be a very, very interesting. I'd always heard about the Seven Thunders, Joseph Coleman, that group in New York, and so we are going to talk to someone who has come out of the Seven Thunders movement, attended the church, Joseph Colesman's church in New York, and that should be a very interesting conversation. So for all of our listeners, please stay tuned for that. I want to thank you, Tim, for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Emily. Uh, we'll be talking to each other in the future. And thanks to all of our listeners for listening. God bless you. Keep following Jesus. Amen. Any Amen. last words, Emily? Tim? No, I just, I, I think I want to challenge people to take the homework assignment that you gave them seriously and to actually look uh, at, the, at the scripture and to discover which of those commandments we, the Gentiles, are supposed to follow. I think that's an amazingly important thing to, uh, to focus on, the fact that we are not uh, the Jews of the Old Covenant. Amen. And, uh, and I would really encourage people to do the homework.
great. I'm I'm with you on that. And I also recommend I'm just sitting here looking at Colossians 2 and uh, talking about all the rules and regulations imposed by men and uh, what the scripture has to say about that. So I would recommend while you're in Acts, head on over to Colossians 2 and, and see what all these self-imposed man's rules actually what the scripture has to say about it and what we're supposed to do with it and yeah, nice. we will go into this in some detail in a future podcast perfect thanks hey, everybody. Thanks, thanks emily thanks tim I appreciate your help you bet yeah thanks tim you bet my pleasure see you guys later that's the end of our discussion with emily and tim I want to invite you back next week for our expose on one of the subcults of the message, the Seven Thunders Inspiration. Some of the things you will hear includes an FBI investigation and a false prophet who incorrectly predicted Joseph Coleman's healing just before he died. You won't want to miss our interview with a young lady who was raised in the Seven Thunders movement. If you have a question or comment, please feel free to go to our website at offtheshelf.life. There is a comment section at the bottom of every episode's webpage. Or you are welcome to send an email to me at rod, R-O-D, at offtheshelf.life. And always remember, God is not afraid of your questions. Have a great week, and thanks for listening. Oh, Satan tried to tell me, Andre, why don't you just throw in the towel? I thought I wouldn't be around by now. Oh, but lingering in my ear, that melody I still hear. And it soothes my doubts and calms my fears. That love still, still loves me, still loves me. Oh, he loves me. My God still, oh, he loves me. After all these years, he still loves me, still loves me. He loves me. He always has loved me, and right now he still loves me. I'm so glad.
When I'm down, when I smile, when I frown, when I'm weak, when I'm strong, when I'm right, when I'm wrong, say I will, and I won't, say I do, then I don't, when I win, when I lose, I know for sure, forevermore, that I know he's love with love is there. He still loves me. Yes, he does. God loves me. He loves me. And there ain't no doubt about it. I've got to lift my voice and shout it. Hey.